News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Welcome news for so many people out there. Restrictions on visiting loved ones and long-term care are being loosened. So starting July the 19th, you no longer have to make an appointment and there's no limit on the number of visitors someone can have. Facility-wide social gatherings will also be allowed to resume. And if you have had two doses of the vaccine, you don't have to wear a mask during your visit either. Another interesting note in all this... Also, on July the 19th, the province is going to require that staff members in long-term care homes must, from that point on, disclose their vaccination status. Let's talk about these changes. Joining us is Isabel McKenzie, Seniors Advocate here in BC. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. What did you think? Is this the right time to do this? Uh, Yes, I think it most certainly is. I think uh, these are very welcomed changes. Uh, They... Uh, absolutely, I think, address the issues that families and residents have been um, talking about, which is I have to visit the schedule in advance or the visit in advance. And why do I have to wear a mask if I'm fully vaccinated and my spouse or my mom is fully vaccinated? So I think uh, that's very good. And I think it's not unreasonable to say, okay, if you aren't fully vaccinated, you have to still wear a mask. I think that's completely reasonable at this point in time. So I I do think that this is very welcome for residents and their family members. Is there an area where you still have some concerns? Not really. I think uh, for the most part, this is almost a return to normal. And that sort of parallels where we are province-wide in stage three. It's not completely back to normal, but it's getting pretty darn close. So if we think about what life was like in uh, care homes before COVID, you could go and visit pretty much when you wanted, as often as you wanted, for as long as you wanted. And that's pretty much what we are now reaching with the new um, guidelines that are coming out. You have to sign in uh, so we know who's come and how to contact them. We really had to do that before. Every care home usually did have a a book where you had to sign in because we needed to know who was in our building at any point in time. So that's not that's pretty much uh, was normal before. The issue of wearing a mask if you're not vaccinated, that's new, but as I said, not unreasonable. Um, and you can have as many people as you want gather in the room, and that's the way it was before. There's still going to be, I think, uh, some challenges around prior to COVID, you might have a big birthday party for uh, a resident and the grandkids come and the kids come and it would be in a, in a common area in, um, in the facility. I think that's doing that without a mask is going to be a little challenging right now, but we'll get to that. Right now, it, it can be done, uh, but there's going to be this issue of it's a common area, so you're expected to wear a mask. But I think um, for the most part, I think this is where we should be at this point in time in long-term care, given where we are in the rest of right. the province at this point in time. Is, should we stay on our guard, though, Isabel? Should we remember that how, how difficult this situation was over the past year and a half? We, we should, but Simi, we have to balance that against what we learned over the past year around 
the consequences, I think better accurately described as the unintended consequences of uh, the restrictions we put in place. We did have the strictest visiting restrictions in the country, and it didn't really protect us as much in wave two as we might have hoped that it it would. We still had uh, a very high level of outbreaks in wave two. And we also saw the impact on the residents and on their family members, which I think is an added dimension we were unaware of, that the people who were suffering from these prolonged meaningful separations of meaningful visits weren't just the residents, it was their family members. And that became clear in the, in the uh, you know, 14,000 people that responded to our survey with their stories and their commentary, that they also felt the deep impact and will have lasting uh, impact from this. People are in long-term care. It's their home. They're there to live for what is probably the last couple of years of their life. Sometimes it's the last months of their life. What are you living for if it's not to spend meaningful time with the ones you love in those last Mm -hmm. weeks, months, and years of your life? And taking what will, at the end of the day, be close to 18 months out of that was very, very, very significant. We saw extraordinary increases in the use of antipsychotics. We need to balance, I think, the overall health, again, with the risk of COVID. Now we have this new tool called the vaccine. We are now going to start using the rapid test. We heard that in response to the uh, unvaccinated staff. I would hope that if increased measures are needed in the fall, if we happen to start, if, that we will act quickly on seeing any signs of a wave four, because it still will be the most serious mm-hmm. for, for frail seniors, and that pretty much defines almost everybody in long-term care. But this also changes things for the staff members too, doesn't it? To require staff members to disclose their vaccination status. Is there still a concern there, Isabel, or not enough staff getting vaccinated? I think uh, the concern is still there because overall we have a high vaccination rate as I understand it. I'm told that we have uh, over 80% of staff province-wide are vaccinated, but it's not necessarily that level at every site. So some sites might have 100%, some sites might have 70%, um, and the site with the lower uh, vaccination rate may be small. So Overall, the numbers look high, but in some individual sites, they're not high enough. And we certainly saw that, uh, for example, with one of the earlier, uh, what I call post-vaccination outbreaks in Kelowna. So I, I do believe that it's not unreasonable if you work in healthcare to accept that one of the things I have to do is be vaccinated against uh, uh, viruses the public health officer deems uh, critical. But we're not there yet, but we're getting closer and closer. And I think this is one step uh, uh, closer. The uh, province has said, if you're not vaccinated with COVID, uh, for COVID, you have to wear a mask and you have to be rapid tested three times a week. They've also said that the single site order is going to be varied, but only for those who are fully vaccinated. 
So if I want to work uh, a couple of shifts in two different care homes, I can't do that unless I'm fully vaccinated. So that's another way of really uh, trying to get voluntary compliance as much as possible. Uh, I do believe we have not yet given up on the idea, however, that the uh, vaccination for COVID-19 become mandatory. Interesting. Isabel, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Okay, my pleasure, Simi. Thank you. Isabel McKenzie, Seniors Advocate here in BC, talking about the changes coming July 19th, loosening restrictions. If you want to go visit a loved one in long-term care, this is what you have been waiting for. And I would love to hear your story on this. A lot of people have not been able to give a hug, visit a loved one. How excited are you for this? What are you going to do? Um, what's going to change for your loved one, you know, send me an email on that, simi at cknw.com. What, how difficult has it been during the pandemic with all of these changes and not being able to give that hug to someone that you love? You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899 and let me know how you feel about these changes that are coming, including the fact that now staff members are going to have to disclose their vaccination status and it will impact where they are able to work. Some interesting changes too. This is Mornings with Simi. We are spending money again compared to a year ago. What are we spending our money on? Vaccination rates are climbing, of course, so we are taking out those credit cards, those debit cards, and we are buying, buying, buying. Joining us now is Brian Green, uh, the country head of Canada at Fiserv, which is an industry and provincial spending trend company. He's going to tell us all about that. Brian, thanks for joining us. Hey, Simi. Great to be on the show. Thanks so much. Now, how do you um, monitor these spending trends? Sure. So, you know, just a point of clarification, um, what Fiserv does is uh, we provide a solution called Clover for small and medium-sized businesses. And these are the white point-of-sale terminals that you might have seen in your shopping experience. So we enable businesses to accept payment cards, and we provide, through the Clover network, technology that businesses can use to run their business, like restaurant solutions, retail solutions, employee management solutions. That's what we do. So So, really the information that I'm going to share with you today is our observation from the spending activity at the large number of Clover merchants that we have across the country. So what we did is we took a look at the spending activity over this holiday weekend, and we compared it to the holiday weekend over the previous year, and it really indicated a lot of optimism um, and confidence for the future. Okay, in what ways though? So clearly you know what we're buying because we're tapping that thing, right? When we are buying all sorts of stuff. So yeah, we, what are we spending we our money on? Sure, so uh, here's what we saw. First of all, spending was up 34% compared to the previous year's Canada Day holiday weekend. But semi more importantly, spending was up 300% when we looked at just the airlines and transportation category. And that's a combination of travel consumption over this past holiday weekend and also purchases for future travel. So people are optimistic about the future. Also, hotel spending was up 118%, and that's also a strong indicator of optimism. I mean, let's face it, people are eager to have a change of scenery, and they also really want to go and visit family and friends now that they've been separated for almost two years. They're making the commitment, they're getting out, and they're doing it. Right. What about personal care services, right? Because people, I know in other provinces, you couldn't get a haircut for so long, couldn't go to the spa, that kind of stuff. Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's interesting because this is what we saw in personal care services. 
spending was up just a little bit. Spending was up 10% in personal care services when we look right across the country. So like, we all know that we want to go out there and we want to pamper ourselves. We want to get our hair done. You know, we want to get our nails done and, and, um, and just spend some time on ourselves. And we're starting to see that. But I think that what we saw even more importantly, when we look in the Clover Solution set, where there's employee management and there's scheduling we saw a huge increase in the registration of employees in the network. So personal, and this is in the personal care category. People are bringing their employees back. Mm. They're getting them settled in and they're opening up their calendars to take appointments for future um, hairdresser and nail salon and spa uh, appointments. Those appointments really skyrocketed. So I think what we didn't see a big increase in spend over the holiday weekend in, in services we saw that the service industry is getting ready to just take off. Right. It is going. All right, Brian, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Brian Green. Their company, of course, is the what the, those things that we tap, right, when we spend some money so they know what we're spending money on. They said personal care services, yeah, we're spending more money on it. It was a 108% increase year over year, but even more is expected in the months ahead. As you heard Brian say, they know they can tell people are registering employees on the service, so people are getting ready to take those appointments. We're spending money. That's essentially what it comes down to. We know that from the StatsCan numbers out this morning. Uh, we have seen it from their retail survey. We've seen it from companies like uh, Brian's there. So what are you spending money on? What is that big ticket item that you are ready to spend money on? Are you shopping for a new car, shopping for a new TV, a boat, camper? trailer? What's it going to be? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you love to watch car racing, then you are in for a treat in Vancouver. There is a well quieter, more environmentally friendly car race to look forward to in 2022. Vancouver is going to be hosting the 2022 FIA Formula E World Championship Car Race. We'll talk more about that now with the help of Sarah Kirby-Young, the uh, Vancouver City Councillor who joins us. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So I know you were a big fan of this, so you must be pretty pleased to hear that it's going ahead. Oh, I'm stoked. I'm super excited that we now officially have been approved by um, the World's uh, Formula E and are officially on the calendar and we have a date. Right. So what is the date? Uh, it'll be taking place in 2022 for the first year on the Canada Day long weekend. It's a three-day event and the actual race day will be on the Saturday, July 2nd. Now, how was the route determined for this? So the route, um, they're finalizing the route, but it's going to be down in Falls Creek, which will provide those iconic sort of views and backdrops uh, of Vancouver. As you remember, when the Molson Indy happened years ago, it was uh, in the heart of Vancouver. And this will center um, also sort of in an, an urban setting, which is typical of uh, Formula E events when they're selecting their host destinations around the world. Um, so it will center on Falls Creek and um, the exact route will be released a bit later, but sort of imagine sort of around the water down there and um, in, sort of including in laughing science world. Right. Like, as lots changed. Like, I remember covering the Molson Indy back in the day, and, like, it was a very popular event, but, boy, then eventually the neighborhood got so built up that the noise was just more than they could take, and rightfully so. Well, that's what's so interesting about and exciting about this one, being an electric race, is that the decibel level is... Is they're, 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 it's very quiet, first of all, so you're not going to hear that sort of same room room that you heard during the Indy. Um, but it's actually quieter than listening to a Skytrain. 
car. So um, not as much disruption, obviously, with respect to noise and a much cleaner event. Um, but it was also really important to us to work with the neighbourhood. So the organizer OSS strategy, I had asked them, it reached out early on to work with the Falk Street Residents Association. Um, and they will be working with them throughout to minimize disruption on the neighborhood and talk about leading a legacy um, as well, whether it's electric charging stations or, you know, support for sort of something that the community feels is important. Right. Is this one event or will we see more? Well, I'm really hopeful that, uh, I, that, that this is something that we'll be able to see on our summer calendar um, for years to come. The enthusiasm has been amazing. Um, and when we were talking about this event, we didn't have any um, dates or sort of hope of reopening on the horizon. So this was really trying to put something in the calendar for 2022 that people could look forward to. And it, the response was overwhelming. Um, residents were just so excited to have something uh, to look forward to and talk about that wasn't COVID all day, every day. Um, and for the tourism sector, this is a huge boost for them. Um, they're incredibly excited. So hopefully um, this will go well and be well received and it'll become a regular thing for our city. Right. What's on the list then for Vancouver City Council? I know there's, you know, talk of a lot of different events. You want to get things back up and going. You want people to start enjoying themselves outdoors. But what are some of the events that Vancouver City Council has in front of them to do that, to get that enthusiasm going? Well, I think that there's a lot of those. I mean, we've got a lot of fantastic local events that all had to be um, cancelled. If you think about it, everything from the Pride Parade to our beloved fireworks, um, you know, Italian Day on the Drive and to go on. And so want to see all of them come back in full force. And I know that people, you know, that's what makes a Vancouver summer, right? It's hard to think about a summer in Vancouver without seeing fireworks, for example, or a pride. So I, I really want to see them come back strongly. Um, but I also want to be a, a city that is open for exciting new events like this. Uh, this is a green one. It's electric. It's sustainable. It's net zero. It brings um, economic impact in the region. And so I want us to be a city of, yes, um, we are excited to welcome events like this, not sort of a city of no no we're not sure about it or you know there are challenges with it um Mm -hmm. so i think this really signals the kind of new event that we want to bring here into vancouver all right well thanks for your time on that this morning no worries sarah kirby young city of vancouver councillor talking about the formula e world championship car race coming to vancouver canada long canada day long weekend next year 2022 very different sound wise from the molson indy and i know a lot of people are probably going to get out and enjoy this and what do you think what event do you really want to see come back next year what's the event that you think i gotta go is it the fireworks is it the jazz festival folk music festival what is it simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi $10 a day. Child care, transit announcement, a big one expected this morning in Surrey. Is a federal election imminent? Oh, it must be, right? Because infrastructure announcements abound. Now, for parents, the election may not matter as much as the good news about child care that they have been waiting for means that more spaces will be made available at $10 a day over the next five years. For more on all of this, we're joined now by Catherine McKenna, the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, Simi. Great to join you. Great to be in Vancouver. And every time we talk to you, you know, I ask you the same question, right? I always say, when is that transit announcement on Surrey coming? And you've said it's in the works. I'm guessing it's imminent. Well, I'm going to Surrey today. That's all I can say with the Prime Minister. Okay. So does this tell us, do you think, like, these are big announcements. How long have some of these things been in the works for, like childcare? Why do we have to wait until close to an election to get this? 
Uh, well, childcare, as you know, was something that the finance minister and the prime minister committed to in our budget. And so we had to negotiate agreements. And what is great news is, is British Columbia, Premier Horgan was the first premier to say, we need this here uh, in BC. And so it's just a great announcement. These things take time. That includes major public transit announcements. I've been working. I've told you, Simi, and uh, the folks of uh, you have. Vancouver, Greater Vancouver area. I've been working on this file. It takes a while to land them. These are, you know, a large number of taxpayer dollars. we got to make get the maximum value out of them. But I think taking childcare, I know how, you know, the cost of living is such an issue for folks who uh, live in, in Greater Vancouver area and B.C. And so this is going to make a huge difference. I have three kids. And, uh, you know, it's expensive. Uh, and the great news is at the end, by the end of uh, next year, average childcare costs will be cut in half. There'll be 12,000 new $10 a day childcare spots. And in five years, childcare will be $10 a day. And I think that's a win for everyone. What kind of infrastructure projects do you think, though, Canada still needs to focus on? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, we need to be investing in infra- infrastructure across the board. Uh, I've certainly been very focused on public transit. Uh, we have a $15 billion new transit fund um, for major projects. So we need to get major projects. Great cities have great public transit. So stay tuned today. But, I mean, you, you look at even adapting to the impacts of climate change. Look at Lytton. Um, the infrastructure there was devastated. So we really need to recognize that climate change is real. It's having a real impact. So we have to have resilient infrastructure. Um, We need to be making investments in wastewater. We need to be making investments in new buildings that are all net zero. That's one of our new funds. Um, Active transportation. um, And also stay tuned. There's going to be another announcement related to natural infrastructure. So I think people in BC get it that you don't have to build things just out of concrete, that nature also can play a very important role in reducing emissions, but also building more resilience to climate change. Natural infrastructure, what does that mean? Well, so you can take it, there's many different examples, but um, I just made an announcement with Mayor John Tory in Toronto, and they have a ravine strategy. So these are ravines that go up the spine of Toronto, and it's an amazing place, an amazing ecosystem, but we want to get people out to nature in a, in a way that doesn't harm the nature. Um, and we saw in the pandemic, I've really noticed that Canadians understand the importance of nature and the value of getting out in nature. And many people in Toronto, like Vancouver, have no private nature. They don't have backyards. And so making sure that there are more spaces for people to get out to um, in nature, and there's multiple benefits, obviously benefit for animals, benefits uh, for clean air. Um, In the case of the ravines, it's benefits on climate change because it builds resilience. There's some flooding in some of those areas. So I think we need to think about things differently. I've certainly brought that to my infrastructure portfolio, my climate focus, because climate is the thing. And we need to really focus on how are we going to reduce emissions, but how are we going to build resilience and how are we going to improve lives for people? One of the things that we saw during the pandemic, though, is that transit ridership went way down. And even though people are going back to work, we haven't really seen that rebound to pre-pandemic levels. Does that concern you? Uh, look, I think transit is, the ridership is bouncing back. Look, I was just, um, you know what, I uh, I took public transit, the SkyTrain, from the airport to uh, downtown. It's great. It's faster. Um, it's inexpensive. Uh, it's better for the environment. Um, and so, you know, when you make transit an irresistible option, people are going to take it. And I, I really think you have an opportunity also 
when you talk about the cost of living, people are moving further out. So you need better transit. Like take a place like Surrey. You need to have better transit for people to get around. So I, uh, we need to bet big on transit. It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important to get people to their houses and their schools, kids to school faster. Um, but it's also really important to tackle climate change. Emissions from the transportation sector of a quarter of Canada's emissions so we got to get people around in cleaner ways. Um, so uh, there's also a good Canadian story because a lot of the um, transit, like when you take electric buses, we're a world leader in electric buses. Uh, here you have valid fuel cell technology, but we also have New Flyer Nova bus uh, out of Quebec. And that's really important because we need jobs. So I'm always focused on every dollar we spend, multiple benefits. It's got to create jobs, it's got to tackle climate change, and it's got to build more inclusive communities. You've mentioned already that uh, you are not going to be running in the next election. What prompted that decision? Well, I think like many um, over COVID, I had uh, some time to reflect about what was really important to me. Um, I have three kids. Uh, they, I've been in politics a while now, and they were four, six, eight when I started. They're now teens. Uh, the eldest is heading off to uni- university. We're checking out UBC. <laughs> because uh, there's, a, I guess, an interest in getting out of Ottawa. <laughs> but, um, you know, and also climate change is just the most important issue. And while we've done a ton in Canada, we need every country in the world to do what Canada's done. They need to have comprehensive climate plans. They need to have a price on pollution. They need to phase out coal. They need to be making historic investments in public transit, um, in retrofitting buildings across the board. And I'm really worried, like, Lytton is the canary in the coal mine. And I thought one of the members of the community said it really well. Like, you know, we're an indigenous community, um, but guess what? Climate change is coming for everyone. And so we're really in this together. I'm looking at how do I play the, you know, what is the most important role I can play to really making a difference on the most important file? Uh, I don't even file. It's the most important thing. It's a health issue, as we've seen. With We're going to see a lot of challenges with air quality this summer out in D.C. Um, it's a national security issue. Um, it's an infrastructure issue. Literally, the infrastructure was incinerated in Lytton. Um, it's an equity issue. Um, it's an everything issue. So that's really my passion. And I always do You know what I'm passionate about. I, I love politics, but I think it's time to move on to something new. But I will always be supporting the work we've done as a government, um, working really hard to push Canada to, do, of course, do more like every country. And then, you know, just figuring out how do we tackle the biggest issue we have. Right. Listen, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. That's great. Thanks, Jimmy. Stay tuned, everyone. That is Catherine McKenna, Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. And the reason why she is saying stay tuned is uh, it, it has been a bit of a you know conversation thing that we have had. Every time we've interviewed Catherine McKenna over the past year, and we've probably done it about three or four times, I've asked her, when is this Surrey Transit announcement coming? When is this Surrey? And she keeps saying, we're working on it. Stay tuned. Well, this morning it's coming, actually. And stay tuned is to 11 o'clock this morning when everybody, you've got the Premier, the Prime Minister, Minister of Transportation, the Mayor of Surrey, you name it, will be at this announcement. And we expect that we will hear that SkyTrain will be funded all the way out to Langley. So a very big deal for residents in the Lower Mainland and Surrey in particular. And that was uh, Catherine McKenna talking about the work that's been done on that. This is Mornings with Simi.
Jobs numbers are out this morning right across the country. And for Canada overall, it was better than economists had expected. The vast majority of those jobs, though, being part-time jobs. And not surprising considering that the month of June is when a lot of stuff started to reopen. People started to get back to work. But what about BC's jobs numbers? Joining us now is Ravi Kailan, our Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thank you for being back with us. Thanks for having me. So what is BC's jobs picture like? Well, uh, the uh, job numbers today are, are very positive for BC. Um, BC is leading the country in, uh, in economic recovery. We're the uh, only province in, in the country that is uh, higher than our pre-pandemic employment numbers, uh, which is quite uh, significant, and, uh, and it shows uh, that our plan is uh, working. Okay, so what is the unemployment rate then for what did we see in the month of June? Well, we saw that we've gained 42,000 jobs. Uh, yes, we've gained more uh, part-time uh, employment. It's important to note that this survey was taken uh, as we entered stage two. Uh, and so this was uh, about a month ago. Uh, and what it shows is that we continue to gain jobs. Uh, we continue to outpace the rest of the country. Uh, and we've, uh, again, highlighted that we're starting to see gains in accommodation and food service sectors, which we know have been hard hit throughout this pandemic. Right. We know the ground is starting to level up, though, between provinces, right? We know that other provinces are now approaching the same thing. They are also opening up. How are we going to compete? We are competing and we're actually eating. <laughs> and that's the, that's the good news, uh, you know, considering that uh, we uh, all the provinces saw a drop in employment. Uh, but not only that, we're also seeing a net migration of people moving to British Columbia. So we're seeing people from other provinces leaving and coming to British Columbia because they see uh, opportunities uh, here, good paying jobs. Uh, and, uh, and that's a positive thing for our economy. Is there an area, though, where you think it's still lagging? We still have work to do? Well, we still have some challenges for sure. Uh, you know, uh, again, the numbers that are reflected here uh, are in stage two. It doesn't reflect where we are obviously uh, today, but we know that accommodation and uh, our tourism sector still uh, will face pressures. I know that uh, there's a significant uptake in uh, uh, tourism within BC, uh, and many of the facilities are starting to get booked up real quick. But until we see uh, international travelers come, there'll still be a lot of pressures in, in that sector. Okay. And what about labor shortages too? Are you hearing about this from industries? Yeah, we, uh, it does come up in, in certain sectors uh, and, uh, and certainly the top of mind focus for us. I mean, yesterday's announcement uh, with the, the Premier and the Prime Minister is quite significant. Uh, you know, the ability to starting next year reduce childcare fees by 50% uh, is, is very significant to help us address that challenge. More people will be able to enter the workforce and help us meet the demand uh, of labor that we have in our economy. Right. Now, that's also going to be very, very challenging. Are there particular industries, do you think, that are, are, are going to be very hard hit by this? Well, it's, it's the sectors that uh, saw the employment numbers drop the most. Uh, so those in uh, hospitality and, and tourism uh, where we're seeing the, the biggest uh, challenge to hire uh, workers. Um, and, and, you know, you have to, it's, it's important to note that uh, when those sectors slowed down, a lot of people shifted because there was opportunities in manufacturing and, and other sectors. And so now it's going to be critically important, like through the childcare investments, through the minimum wage going up, 
to pull people that have been sitting on the sidelines or haven't worked for a long time to come back into the workforce. And that's what we're hoping the investments we're making will do. Right, because now you talk about ramping up in childcare. We're going to need a lot more people to work in childcare. Um, you know, there's just going to be so many more pressures on some of these industries. How are we going to deal with that? Well, uh, it's uh, upskilling and reskilling people. It's increasing minimum wages. It's pulling people that have been on the sidelines uh, back into the workforce. We've heard that there's some people who uh, haven't worked through the pandemic and who are a little afraid. Um, and so as the case counts go down and more people get vaccinated, we know that more of those people will uh, continue to uh, enter the workforce. We're starting to see more people come in from uh, uh, other provinces. And the federal government has uh, announced a very ambitious uh, immigration plan because we know we need new immigrants to come to Canada uh, to meet the demand of our growing economy. Uh, I think uh, all those things combined puts us in a good place. But again, continue to make investments in childcare, continue to make uh, investments in um, uh, reskilling and upskilling people so that they have the opportunities to take these jobs. Would you like to see more people come from other parts of Canada and, and choose B.C.? Well, uh, you know, when, when in stage two, we're already at uh, higher employment levels than we were at pre-pandemic employment, and employers are telling us that they can't find people, and we're going to need to find more people, and we're going to need to reskill and upskill uh, the people that uh, are on the sidelines. So, um, you know, I think it's positive to see people from other provinces coming to BC because they see hope and opportunity here. Uh, it's a promising sign for our economy. It's an interesting time, though, isn't it? Because there are still some governmental supports for businesses out there. Looking ahead, though, how are you, how is BC preparing for when those supports are no longer available? A lot of businesses say that they, that's the point where they're going to find out whether they're going to make it or not. Yeah, I think a lot of the businesses uh, were still in that bit of uncertainty around what the future looks like. And, and I think it's important to note that some businesses have done very well for the pandemic, and there are some sectors that are struggling. Uh, and they look at the, the federal supports uh, in particular. Uh, our supports are staying in place, the PSD reduction, the tax credits for hiring, rehiring for the entire year. Uh, and uh, But I do think that our economy is very resilient, uh, and, uh, and I do think we're going to continue to see employment gains in the coming months. Uh, and uh, and I'm feeling very positive about an overall economic recovery for BC. Are we going to need more construction workers as well? I hear there's a big transit announcement coming this morning. That sounds like more jobs, big jobs, uh, for building more transit infrastructure. Well, we have one of the most ambitious uh, capital infrastructure plans in probably the history of this province. I mean, we're building eight hospitals in the province. We're uh, investing in child care infrastructure, which is critically important. And, uh, and yeah, soon you'll be hearing about a very uh, important project to uh, uh, advance transit. And, uh, uh, again, all very positive. Uh, and, yes, we are going to have pressures on finding people to uh, step up and, and take these jobs on. And, uh, and, and you know, that's, that's a good problem to have. All right, we'll see how we deal with that. Ravi Kalan, thank you very much for your time.
Thank you for having me, Simi. Take care. You too. That's the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Uh, good jobs news for BC in the month of June. Expected to be better, though, even when next month's come out, because uh, the numbers were assessed just, you know, just as we started to get into that stage two. And if we know stage two, stage three has come and gone and boy, people are getting called back to work and things are really ramping up. You've got big construction projects on the way. Big announcement coming, you know, in partnership with the federal government this morning. Bridges being built, you know, SkyTrain being built, hospitals being built. Uh, You've got industries all over ramping back up again. One of the big stories we're going to be talking about in the months ahead is a labor shortage. Where are businesses going to find all of the employees they're going to need to get up and running again? And I'm sure you're a business, if you're a business person out there and you've been trying to hire You know what I'm talking about. Tell me your story. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We can tell an election is near by the almost campaign-like stops the Prime Minister seems to be making this week, including a significant announcement in Surrey this morning. You can also tell by the number of MPs who say they are not going to run again. One of those, of course, is independent MP for Vancouver, Granville Jody Wilson-Raybould, who joins us now to talk about that decision. Thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Listen, what what has the last 24 hours been like for you since telling everyone your decision? <laughs> well, I, um, I have been greatly blessed by getting thousands of messages from people um, all over, and I'm extremely appreciative and and uh, certainly the messages that I've been getting from um, well, everybody but from the people in Vancouver Granville in the riding that I've been honored to represent for almost six years um, has been very heartwarming and you know it leads to mixed emotions about uh, about moving forward but um, I feel really blessed. What went into this decision then was there a point in the last six months in the last year when you said you know what I'm not going to do it again? Well, I I don't know if there is I can pinpoint a, a time, but um, this decision for me has been a long time in coming. I um, you know I ran in the 2019 campaign proudly as an independent and believing and still do believe that independent voices matter. Um, and for a time after the election, and I know that we um, all have been um, uh, moving through our the COVID reality, but for a time in Parliament, um, parties, MPs work together to get things done to support Canadians. Uh, and, you know, soon after, um, things fell back into, um, and I talk about this a lot, fell back into this hyper-partisan reality where the issues that I have advocated for for decades and my constituents elected me to advocate for, whether it be climate change, Indigenous reconciliation, social justice issues, um, they took a back seat to this um, jockeying and toxic environment where um, whether it's the governing party or, or opposition parties just simply wanting to, to garner and gain votes versus actually substantively addressing these issues. And that, to me, um, is an environment that obviously does not um, create long-term sustainable solutions to the ongoing challenges we face as a society. Okay, so frustrating. How, how do we improve that then? So how does the opposition do its job of being opposition without it becoming politically partisan? Like, where is that line? 
Well, I mean, I mean, politics is politics. I mean, I understand um, the reality of it. But, um, you know, in our system of government that we have right now, I don't necessarily think that um, simply because parties in opposition that we can't find common um, ground or try to build consensus on certain issues, um, whether it be reconciliation or addressing climate change, simply because an issue or a solution comes from an opposition MP, whether it's the official opposition or otherwise, um, doesn't mean it's a bad one simply because it's not from the government. And, you know, having discussions around ideas, no matter where they come from, if they're good ideas and we work and try to build consensus around them, um, that's how I believe you know, things should operate. That's not how our system operates, but it needs to change and we need to have discussions about how we practice democracy. How do you encourage that to happen then from outside of the system? Well, I I think that we have, um, I mean, we've been we obviously have a, and are confronted with the reality of, of climate change and having to address it. Um, horrific revelations around um, residential schools and um, children, um, where the intention of Canadians is is heightened around these issues, and it should be. And you know, I talk about um, needing to have and seeing Canadians standing up on these issues and speaking out. And the more that we do, and I find. Um, for myself, right now, being outside of that toxic environment uh, in Parliament um, and being able to work with um, other people, other Canadians on these issues to to lead the leaders in, in, in Parliament and give direction. And that's where I want to focus my attention, whatever the venue is for that. So is that a no to politics or is that a no for now? Well, I I don't have um, any current plans to take on any particular role in politics uh, at any any level in in the near future. And I guess you're referring to the question that everybody seems to talk about is that people think, oh, are you going to run for mayor of Vancouver? Yesterday, you said that you hadn't really thought about it. You've had some time to think about it now. What do you think about people making that suggestion? Well, I... I've had a lot of people um, encourage me to, to run in the, the mayoral race or in other positions. As I said, I don't have any current plans. I appreciate people's faith in me, but I, I haven't considered the mayoral race. Okay, so what is the schedule then? Are you going to take some time off and, and what does that do you think look like? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm still proudly um, the member of parliament for Vancouver Granville until an election's called, whenever that's uh, uh, going to be. Certainly, um, you know, everybody's talking about an impending election. So I'm going to continue to be the MP and I'm going to, um, you know, I'll share some details about uh, what my future plans and work are, um, you know, as they come. I'm looking forward to the, to the, the fall. I have uh, some projects that are, are underway that are coming out in the fall. So. You know, the, we talked about the word reconciliation there. You mentioned that it gets used a lot. Do you think things have changed in the last month or so with the discovery and the discussion of the unmarked graves that have been found? Has something changed, do you think, in the Canadian consciousness? I think so. And I am I am optimistic that there has been a shift in the Canadian consciousness and um, we need to embrace that shift and um, you know 
the revelations that have come out are horrifying. Um, there's going to continue to be such revelations. And the realization that we all need to, to carry with us and work on is that we continue to live in a colonial reality in this country. And it is, as we talked about earlier, it is the Canadians um, that are going to press governments to change that colonial reality by changing laws and policies. And I'm really heartened to see how many people are having this conversation, how many people are thirsty for more knowledge about the reality of Indigenous peoples in this country and wanting to create a better path forward. Mm -hmm. You talked about doing politics differently, particularly in the House of Commons. What about the politics of making big announcements in order to get election votes? We're seeing quite a bit of that happening over the last little while. What is your take on that? Well, I mean, we see that with every election in politics at, at pretty much any level, I mean, again, I I think that um, I hope um, and believe that, uh, you know, Canadians um, can see through those announcements. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some good good things that are being announced. And if uh, whether it's childcare or otherwise, I mean, obviously, we need to support women um, being in the workforce. Um, we need to hold politicians to their promises. We see time and again promises in platforms leading up to elections. This government is a primary example of making promises on Indigenous reconciliation, for example, and not following through. It's up to us as Canadians, as voters, to hold um, politicians to account for what they've promised. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. That's Jody Wilson-Raybould, Member of Parliament for Vancouver-Granville, talking about the fact that she's announced she's not running in the next election, but what are her plans for the future? Well, for that, she says, we'll have to wait and see.